now it's time for the Six Pips podcast, brought to you by Schofield Watch Company. This week, Giles answers six questions on the subject of designing the Schofield way, put to him by me, Harry Dizerens. How to design a beautiful thing. Giles, I know that this is a big subject, and one that you've done seminars on in the past, but could you tell us what methodology you employ to design a beautiful thing? Thank you, Harry. And this is going to be terrific. Terrific because it's the one podcast I've been most excited about recording. Simply because it's the one where you're going to have to get me to stop talking uh, rather than finding things to talk about. So as many of you know, this is certainly a subject that I'm incredibly enthusiastic about. And I should refer all the listeners to the 2015 seminar found on our website in the About Schofield page recorded at Salon QP, where I talk in length about the method of how to design a beautiful thing. I am also in the process of writing this into a book, or at least I should say the book is kind of written, but Schofield, as always, is so busy and I'm a terrible tweaker, meaning that it hasn't got any further in the last year or so. Anyhow, be on the lookout for it because one day we will do something with that. How to design a beautiful thing is an analysis of how I go about justifying an object's existence. The title, How to Decide a Beautiful Thing, was changed from How to Design a Beautiful Object. And this was because I was invited to give a talk to a large investment bank on this subject because it related to an algorithm that they used to do their investments. Rather than it being an object that I was talking about specifically, we ended up talking over the elegance of a piece of software, a piece of software that was their beautiful thing because, of course, it did their investments for them. Put simply, it is a seven-mile journey with seven-mile markers And the first one is tenacity. Tenacity is this bending and winding road that takes you from A to B. And you do it because you are tenacious and not because you are stubborn. Stubbornness is a very foolish attribute and not something you want at all because being pig-headed means that ultimately you end up with a very narrow field of view. Tenacity means you have the energy to be able to carry you forward down that long path. You need tenacity to design a beautiful thing. Next would be enthusiasm. Now, this is something that you need to find if you don't have it, because designing a beautiful thing without it is very difficult, because ultimately you want to be in love, or you're certainly very passionate about what it is you are designing. I always say that doors open for enthusiastic people and certainly they have done for me. I'm an enthusiastic person and tend to be quite enthusiastic about all sorts of subjects, not just watches. Enthusiasm is a key sustainer to the project, to any project that you're doing. The third would always be to assemble your team because you need to be honest about what you can and cannot do. You need to hold your hand up and say, I simply am no good at bookkeeping, for example. 
And that, that's me all over, unfortunately. And so you find somebody that can be part of your team that is better than you at that thing. That is if you can't do it yourself and if enthusiasm can't take you there. So photography, for example, I was okay at photography, but I found a way to be better at photography, certainly when I was starting the Schofield brand and we couldn't afford professional photography. The fourth milestone would be constraints. And this is quite a large topic because constraints are handled quite heavily at Schofield. Maybe less so for other brands, and that's still okay because we still have to understand constraints. But constraints are the things that tie you down. Because as a creative and enthusiastic person, they are the anchors, the constraints, and they are also the flavor. Meaning that if you are designing within constraints, then it stops you from flying off at random angles and all sorts of incongruent tangents. We use many constraints. And for me, a lot of those are mathematical in my designs. They give a certain ratio and proportion that is consistent across all objects. The fifth is understanding your responsibilities. Responsibilities such as your environmental concerns, because of course all of these affect the design before you've even put pen to paper. If, for example, you wanted to make something out of recycled material, then that naturally is going to affect the design. If you have lots of constraints in place before you design something, then that in turn is going to affect the outcome. And your team, mentioned in Milestone 3, will also have an effect because some of the design of your beautiful object may be put into the hands of somebody else that you trust. The sixth milestone would be a billion whys. This is asking not just five whys, not just asking five questions, but asking an infinite number of questions, never stopping asking questions. Because, frankly, if you ask lots of questions, you get lots of answers. And I certainly want answers, because with those answers, it gives me wisdom, it gives me knowledge and an understanding of what it is I'm embarking on. So always asking many questions. How can I do this? And why would I do this? And the seventh and last milestone is to test, to constantly evaluate the work you are doing along your tenacious path, to keep reviewing, to ask more questions, sometimes of other people, not just to yourself, to say, not do you like it, but is this in the right place? Do you like its proportions? Do you like the weight? How does the weight make you feel? Is it cold to touch? Is it hot to touch? Is it satisfactory? Is it underwhelming or overwhelming? This is the backbone of the book, How to Design a Beautiful Thing, this methodology that I employ. And I have never not employed this methodology. Even if I'm pushed for time or strapped for cash, it is still these milestones that I will go through. Now, of course, I don't have them in front of me as bullet points. It's not as if I am following a prescriptive list at all. It is just the way that I do things. And it is the way that it has affected every Schofield product and gives a certain consistency throughout the work. For the second question, could you talk us through some of Schofield's beautiful things? 
and remind me of how they tie into the brand as a whole. So it's very easy giving you seven bullet points to how Schofield goes about designing its products, the beautiful things. But of course, most of this is subconscious. I don't have a bullet point list in front of me over the top of the computer reminding me of these points all the time. Some of them are inherent. Yet it's nice to be able to look back and say that these things are still being done now as they were when we first started. Nothing has changed. It's this methodology that impacts on every single touch point of the business. Because it's about beautiful things, not necessarily beautiful objects, as I already mentioned. And a beautiful thing is also the website. It is also the way we communicate. It is also the business operations. It is all of our internal dialogue and our internal admin and organization and all of these bits and pieces. They are designed too and designed with the same tenacity, enthusiasm, team, constraints, responsibilities, questions and testing as is everything else that you see as our output. So when talking about some of Schofield's beautiful things, I've decided that I would like to talk from the outside in. So from the packaging back in towards the watch, we take great pride in all of the aspects. As I already said, every touch point of the business has been designed and it's been designed with reason. The packaging that we use, we've talked about a lot because it is constrained by environmental factors such as being FSE certified, recyclable, can it work towards our B Corp status, which is a environmental and social responsibility accreditation that we are working towards, perhaps a butterfly mark as well. Does it fall in line with our soon to be launched collaboration with Surface Against Sewage? So those constraints will impact on the design of the packaging. Now, it's all very well packaging a watch box in recycled cornstarch peanuts, but they're really ugly and they're horrible and they're infuriating as they spit out all the floor. So what other options do we have? And this for us is where it gets quite difficult, but also quite exciting because it means we have to do considerable research into the other options and think creatively about how we can use those options in a way that is still satisfactory, on point and cool. Cool, I know, is really ambiguous. It doesn't mean a lot, but it's quite an important word because ultimately you as an individual or me as an individual has an understanding of what my cool is and I want something that is cool. It fits in with my understanding of the word. Luckily, there are other people out there that think the same way I do and therefore we have a viable business. Uh, packaging is no different to watches and we want the packaging to be as cool as possible within the price and environmental constraints and responsibilities. And then of course we have to assemble the team that we spoke about before and that's finding the right supplier, the supplier that can deliver a prototype quickly and a supplier that can deliver the boxes accurately cut, measured, all of that stuff so that they work consistently. Now, you've got the boxes, and then, of course, you've got the internal packaging, or at least the shock-absorbing protective layer. And then we have our wooden boxes that sits within that packaging. And the wooden box is, for me, an extremely exciting and satisfactory 
piece of design because it is an evolution from boxes that I've been making for a decade and having come from a woodworking heritage. It is a subject on which I feel I have some authority. The box itself has recently been renewed. We call the new box the Universal Box. It's the Universal Box because we use it now for all of the watches. They used to be separate and of course this is a supply chain nightmare. Also the new box is lighter, therefore saving on shipping costs and fuel usage and all these little impacts that occur when you design something heavy. It was initially designed heavy. It is now designed light. It was designed heavy, so it had presence. But of course, the zeitgeist has changed. The expectations of watch boxes have changed because the collectors, regardless of the magnificence of the box, will still put it in the cupboard. And so it has to be a beautiful thing. But at the same time, it doesn't want to exhibit too much of a cost ratio. Therefore, out of the money that you spend on the project, you don't want the box smacking of too much because ultimately it's not going to be used. So you have to make it cost effective, but that does not mean it can't be beautiful. Our box is designed around a marine chronometer box, and we have used consistently the same proportions from the very beginning. So all the boxes are collectible and they stack quite nicely. We use a golden rectangle, which is used consistently across all our designs. And that is the ratio of 1 to 1.6180 that is regarded aesthetically as the most beautiful proportion that a rectangle can be. And that ratio is used not just in rectangles, but in all sorts of other ways across Schofield designs. The box has a hinge, badges, an inner lid. It has demarcation for the watch model on the top of the box. It has laser engraving. It's very elaborate, but full of creativity. It's a beautiful object in its own right. And one that I can justify every corner of its existence to you with some sort of narrative. A diversion from working outside in for a second would be the compeller. The compeller's interesting. It's a fidget spinner. It's a whimsy. There's no doubt about that. But it has been designed in cross-section before it was designed in plan. And that's an unusual way to design an object. Typically, you design something that has the most typical viewpoint, as in if you're going to see it at this angle, that's the angle you give most attention to. Compeller was influenced by the Event Horizon spaceship, and it's that shape I wanted to use in cross-section. I wanted it to look like a governor. I wanted it to look like it was spinning even though it was stationary or like it had mass on the outside. This is what we call a fordance. It is a device that is supposed to be spun and it looks like it wants to be spun. The large finger button, that the bit you hold essentially, is designed to look like the centre of a ferris wheel. Something that we're all familiar with is the concentric circles that I use in all my designs. Anyhow, getting back to the watch box. Once you've opened the inner lid of the watch box, then of course we have the watch. I want to talk about the watch, which many of you are familiar with. And watches have a unique set of constraints, that's milestone four, that we don't necessarily find in other industries. And that is that watches at our price point and at our quality level have a particular language that they speak. You can't go into designing watches as a graphic designer because ultimately it'll come out like a 
graphically designed watch, for example, a diesel watch, perhaps even a fossil watch. They tend to be ephemeral. They tend to be very on trend for a short period of time. When designing watches, I wanted the watch to be classical. And that has its own language, a language that I had to learn. I have a very simple litmus test for watches. It has to sit in an airport duty-free cabinet and not look out of place. It's very naive, I know, but it was one that I felt that if you were scanning all of the watches, you were going from Omegas to Breitlings to Rolexes, of course, and then you got to a Schofield, you wouldn't see it as an inferior product. And so it had to hit the basic cues, an extra set of constraints for this particular piece of design. And that required a lot of research. Once that is understood, compounded with all of the other constraints that go to make up Schofield Watch Company, meant that the watch was pretty much designed for me. Meaning, after you have all of your constraints and you understand your responsibilities and you've asked all of the whys, the reasons or the, for the choices that you have made, most of the work is done. It's just a question of drawing it up. Some of the constraints that I use in designs would be the already mentioned golden rectangle. I use this a lot for layout, for proportioning, because there's a direct relationship to the Fibonacci sequence. And that Fibonacci sequence, you can take those numbers exactly and use them for point sizes, for typographical proportioning, for example. For font size relationships, I would use 13 point, 8 point, 5 point, and these are Fibonacci numbers. I'll also use a sequence of guides, and I call them guides because anybody who does anything in Photoshop or Illustrator, and I use Affinity, as we've mentioned in earlier podcasts, will know that you use guides regularly. So I have a custom set of guides, guides that are concentric circles at 0.25 of a mil that diminish in size from the outer edge of the dial all the way to the sub-seconds hand. And within these circles, all the other elements of the dial sits. Again, this gives us a consistency. Hand proportion, dial design all fit within those concentric circles. And typically, I will use whole numbers as much as possible. Now, that's difficult when we're talking millimeters in watch design, because, of course, there are smaller increments that we require, as I've mentioned with the concentric circles. But, for example... I like whole numbers because I f believe they fit comfortably in people's subconscious. I believe that awkward numbers are uncomfortable. And there's a natural relationship and understanding that we have from early schooling with whole numbers and whole dimensions. 44 mil across the case base and not a point more. The crystal is 35 millimetres. The bezel is 41 millimetres. And the three-part stack of our case that many of you are familiar with is 4 millimetres, 4 millimetres and 5 millimetres. This isn't broken down anymore. Now, this isn't lazy. This is a deliberate choice that I make. If I can use a whole number, I will. Instead of 4 millimetres, 4 millimetres and 4.8, the bezel height, the top part of the three-layer stack of the watch, is 5 millimetres. And so it goes. We've talked about constraints, but actually we should also mention some design choices, some of the reasons that things come into existence. Why, for example, 
is there a rebate between the lugs, a square edge that the edge of the strap can fit onto? Why did I not choose to have a strap custom made that had curved edges that fitted against the case? I wanted a straight strap edge because that straight strap edge could be retrofitted to other watches like a Panerai, for example. By rebating the case between the lugs, it meant that I could insert the strap towards the center of the watch, meaning that you didn't get the skin triangles that you often see on a dress watch. That is, when you're looking at the watch, you've got a square edge of a strap interfacing with the radius of the watch case, creating the little triangles in the corner. Now, I don't like those. I find those unattractive. So this is a way of simply eliminating it so that the watch was cool again. So the watch looked good and more integrated. It looked more like a braceleted watch, even though it was strapped, because those skin triangles are minimized. It also looks like the strap comes out of the case, because of course it does essentially, because it's rebated into the side. But we still have lugs, because I really dislike lugless watches, so I wanted lugs. And because I dislike lugless watches, it gave me an opportunity to exaggerate the lugs, to make them very heavy, very substantial. And often this is how I will react to something I don't like, is I will overcompensate in the other direction. And that for me is cool. That for me is wonderful. Why, for example, did I place the crystal below the lip of the bezel? Everybody else has a crystal that is flush with the bezel or proud of the bezel, like you'll see in vintage pilot's chronographs, for example, with large domed crystals. We have a domed crystal, but it is set below. This simple alteration to the standard sets us apart. It gives us an aesthetic identity that is not copied anywhere else. By setting it just quarter of a mil lower than the surface of the bezel, it created a little nail click, a tactility, a charming way of feeling your watch. Our watch guys will either stroke the side of the case or they will run their finger around the bezel. You are one or the other. I don't know the exact ratios, Harry, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure it's got to be it's got to be somewhere like 50-50, perhaps. I personally, and I am a rung my finger around the edge of the bezel. Now, without setting the crystal below the edge of the bezel, that tactility be, would be lost, and that quirk of human behaviour, that anchor to the very product, will be lost. Why, for example, do I have a large flat crown? that is rebated into the side of the case. Well, this was because I did not want a crown guard. I do not want a projection from the edge of the case that would ruin my symmetry and my lines. We're talking concentric circles again. We've got the outer diameter at 44 millimeters, tapering up to the bezel at 41 millimeters, and then we've got the crystal at 35 millimeters already mentioned. But when you look directly down on the watch, you can see these concentric circles. And I did not want a crown protector to interrupt those lines. So by rebating the crown into the side of the case, we automatically are protecting the crown without any artificial workaround. It was a simple, elegant solution to a very common problem. Why did we choose to use slot-headed screw bars instead of quick-release strap fittings. 
We did this because using strap bars makes you anxious as a consumer. I don't want my consumer to be anxious at all. It makes you anxious because there is an inherent distrust of strap bars. So by screwing down the strap, once the strap is fitted, you need no longer fear your watch falling off your wrist because the strap bar has broken. It comes at a cost, of course, both a very physical one because the manufacturer of screw bars is considerably more expensive, but also the cost that changing straps is much harder. You need now two screwdrivers rather than either a fingernail or one small tool. We did slot-headed screws because they are a nod to the tradition of blued screws in the movements of watchmaking. Watchmaking tends not to use Allen-headed or Torx screws. They are slot heads. And so we wanted to show that level of traditional workmanship even in the strap bars. Now, this story goes on and on. There is no end to it. Every single detail has some kind of story behind it and the reason for its being. This is why I wanted to do the podcast, because I wanted to articulate to you that the narrative is there, even though I don't have time right now to tell you all of these things, it is there for those that have subscribed to the Schofield brand, understand that it is a sincere brand, a brand you're allowed to subscribe to. It is not one that is taking you for a ride because those justifications and those stories enrich anybody's ownership of any of the products. Understanding the reasons for a product's existence only furthers your engagement with it. And that's what I want to nurture more than anything else, because owning a Schofield product should not be transitory. And I know this for a fact. We have had watch collectors, guys with significant collections of vintage Pateks, Audemars Piguets, some very expensive Hublots, custom watches on occasion. And then they've had a Schofield black lamp and maybe a Schofield beater. But now all of a sudden, these guys have changed their mind. They want to sell all of their watches and buy a house for their children. Now this has happened. But the Schofield watches are the last to go and reluctantly because they have a genuine engagement with the product. It is not just about money and the privilege of that customer having the money to be able to buy one of our watches. It's about understanding all of the reasons that that product came into existence. And the more of those reasons you understand in their sincerity means that it becomes part of your life story. Now, I know that sounds hyperbolic, okay? And I know that probably sounds a little bit over-romanced. After all, we're in the business of making and selling watches. But I should state emphatically that I believe this to be true and I believe it to be one of our values because I value it in other companies. It is something that I look for. I look for the narrative and the story and not just what the product looks like and how much it is. I base the value on the narrative and not on solely the look the materials, or the shop it came from. Okay, so we've heard about your ideas, but how does manufacturing alter the process? Now, that's a great question, and actually one that falls into constraints. Because, of course, 
manufacturing is a constraint. But with your knowledge of manufacturing, you get to design things a little bit differently. And I've got a nice example. A nice example is our torch. We made a little EDC torch. It's super cool. It was originally designed to go with the black lamp watch so that you didn't then have to hold your watch, which glowed in the dark under a ceiling light. You could activate your own cool torch deliberately for the job. It came with the watch. But we reskinned a lead engine. So we bought lots of torches which had a lead engine, the working part of the torch, that was really powerful, rechargeable, battery, switching mechanism that was satisfactory for our needs, and then completely redesigned the case. Now, I knew that a simple turning process, so the watch case solely going on a lathe, would end up being much cheaper than if the torch needed to be CNC'd. So simply by turning, the design was forced to be round without flutes and facets, and would have to have a set of altering diameters and grooves. These are literally the only options I had in front of me. Knowing this, it took me two months to decide on the proportions of the torch. The golden rectangle was in there again, the balance of knurling versus grooving, the tapering of the case to fit the original engine on the inside, a further turning process to create a rebate for the badge that we had made specifically. It's one of those jobs where actually the manufacturing process created a rod for my back and the effort required to get the beauty out of the constraint was more than it would have been if I had free run to use a CMC machine and create any shape I liked. This is an instance where a forced hand breeds creativity. I'm extremely happy with the outcome of the torch and always have been. I still love it. In fact, I think we've run out completely of torches now and forever. Uh, we will no longer make those because the lead engine is discontinued and also the manufacturer that made the torch for us, we no longer use. I wouldn't bother remaking them. I would do it a different way another time and maybe I will. It's worth mentioning the difference between craft versus manufactured. Craft is that very hands-on approach. Now you can have engineers that have a wonderful touch at reducing machining paths for efficiency to minimize the processes that a CNC machine has to go through to make a watch case. But ultimately the watch case comes out looking precisely as I drew it. The craft element is, for example, how we finish the beta cases. The beta cases are very much one guy doing one job in a way that has inconsistencies built into it. So the product ultimately comes out slightly different, even though the foundation is precisely and exactly the same every time. One watch case is a clone of the other. That's exactly what we need. And then we top it off with craft to create the difference, the individuality and this bespoke-like nature of the beta watch. So this again shows us how those manufacturing constraints can ultimately alter the outcome of the watch or any piece of design. When do you say enough is enough and that the job is done? I would like to say that at Schofield enough is never enough, but there of course is a point 
in which you have to accept that the job is done. That certainly is an understanding that the job is done. Cardinal Newman said, a man would do nothing if he waited until he could do it so well that no one could find fault. Very true. I used to have, between two Schofield offices, a little note, and it said, don't be a dick, get it done. Can I say that, Harry? Yeah, why not? Okay. And what I meant by that was stop fussing, just get on and do it, because I was that man. I was the guy that carried on doing it so well because it needed to be better and better that no one could find fault. It took me a while to learn that, of course, nothing would get done that way. And so you have to set it free. And there are some elements that you know are done. So, for example, I have done a new logo for the website. I've done many logos for the website, and this is because I'm very enthusiastic, not just about watches, but also about logos. I know it is the complete opposite of what you should do with logos, but then I'm not necessarily the kind of man that conforms to those standards. I designed a new logo because I felt like it. And this new logo, well, it wasn't exactly new. It had been around because it was originally designed for the Obscura, which I've been dangling in front of everybody's noses for over a year now. And it will be used on the Obscura. It's just a version of another logo. It's very simple, but I think it's quite charming. That logo was done and dusted, as in there were no more improvements because I love it. And I look at it and I think that is fantastic. It's superb. It's perfect. I wouldn't want to change anything about it. Any scaling, any proportion. It's a job done. But another example would be a poem that we have used inside the universal box. It is a poem that is engraved on the inside of a box next to a large image of a lighthouse light bulb. This poem I love. I think it's the coolest poem. It's not pretentious. It's not difficult to understand. It's just brilliant. And I wanted to use it so much that it took us three months to negotiate with the author's daughter to be able to use it on the box at all. Now, I could have just walked away from that poem. Originally, the negotiations led to a large settlement fee, a fee that we could not afford. And it is at that point that I said, we cannot use the poem. It's a shame because I really love that poem and I wanted it to be on the box, but we can't use it because the fee is too high. Now, we, of course, went back to the author's daughter and said that we're not using the poem to sell the product. The product's already sold. It's just a little piece of obscurity, a little piece of charm that can be found inside the box. Because as many of you know, I'd like to leave no stone unturned. And if I have an opportunity to impress you, then I will do my very best to do so. So if you open the box and the lid on the inside is left bare, well, that's OK. But it's an opportunity to do something fun business at the front party at the back and so the poem was negotiated and we have permission to use it and it's brilliant and it has affected the design what I dislike most of all is lazy design that is where you've almost had enough or there is a time constraint so it has to be done within the time frame and what this does it means that there are elements that are unjustified always. 
So if I can justify all of the elements of a piece of design, then that is the job done. So what about reusing assets? Well, that's fine because I still love them and I can still justify their reason for being. Why do we use the same fonts over and over again? Why do we use a similar style of imagery over and over again? Why do I continually use the same colors even if I do essentially a soft rebrand or a recoloring of the website? It's because I still love those colors. Those colors impress me. Everything at Schofield is designed for me. Often I'm asked, why don't you do this? I said, because I don't want that. I don't want to make that thing. And if I don't want to make it, I'm not going to make it. It's not always about the money. Money is important, but it doesn't come before the passion and the enthusiasm that I have for the business. How often do you like to refresh the Schofield brand? I touched on this a little bit already, and I've mentioned that we've done a new logo for the website and we have in fact facelifted the website almost to a point where you could call it a new website, which we've done many times. And what's the cue for that? The cue is that I have reached breaking point, that I can no longer endure this. It has lost its cool. It is no longer cool and therefore it has to be changed. And when I say it has to be changed, it is literally the next job that I will do. The rate in which Schofield, the brand is refreshed is based on the time I have available to do it, but also because of the necessity I feel it requires. But not just that. It also comes down to the very fact that something needs doing. So rather than reusing, I would rather redo. For example, the B2B3 crown. That B2B3 crown, we already had the drawings for the B2B2, but I wasn't happy with it. I wasn't utterly thrilled and delighted with it. Perhaps I was bored. I've been playing with those crowns for years. Maybe I was just tired of them. But nevertheless, I wanted to refresh my love of that tiny little watch part. So it was redesigned. And it took ages because it's significant redesign. So this is an example of where elements of Schofield get redesigned simply because the opportunity has arised. Now that might be true of the engraving on the case back. We've made a new crown, so let's make a new engraving. I love doing those engravings. They take weeks and weeks, but they're fantastic and they impress me. And if they impress me, then perhaps we'll be lucky enough to impress you too. For our sixth and final question, what are you working on right now that we're likely to see in the near future? So talk us through some of your current projects. Currently, I'm working on just clearing a backlog of bespoke watch designs. And this is something that we are very keen on moving more towards. From a business point of view, that statement doesn't actually make much sense because, of course, you simply cannot charge enough for all of the things that we have been talking about earlier in this podcast. I can't charge enough for the enthusiasm, the assembled team, all of the constraints. And now, of course, if it's bespoke, they're not just my constraints, but they're the customer's constraints as well. And therefore, the negotiations of going backwards and forwards so that the call, my love for it, isn't lost. I simply won't do bespoke if I don't like it. It has to be done my way. That's not arrogance. That's just because I need to retain the 
love I have for the brand and that's one element of it and then we've got all the responsibilities my responsibilities but your responsibilities too and those questions we talked about in milestone six the billion whys they're not just my questions now but they're your questions too so we cannot price up bespoke watches in accordance to good business but we do it because the effects of what we've been speaking about with customer engagement are so much more exaggerated. Of course they are. If you could factor in your own story into the watch design or the product design, then of course you're going to adhere to it even more deeply. And so we get a real buzz out of that. Uh, we've, we've recently done, and you may have seen on Instagram, Doc the dog, a gentleman lost his dog, uh, terrible, sad. We all know how tragic that is to lose a pet. And he wanted to commemorate that with a custom case back and a custom watch, actually, um, with elements that he gave us in a brief. In this case, the dog loved water, the dog loved frisbees and a few other things as well. And so they were the constraints that I had to factor into the design. And of course, the the result is truly wonderful for both us and the customer. We we're recently doing one to commemorate a lost loved one more serious perhaps more responsibility on my part to be sympathetic to those requests but something we are certainly confident in handling both professionally and creatively and so therefore from a business point of view it's really exciting because it gives you new energy to get up and get into work Clearing a backlog of custom designs, and uh, I apologise to any of you guys that are listening that have one uh, down, we're doing our best. And uh, now you know, perhaps, why they take so long. It's not just my design work, but also the manufacturers as well. This, these processes take a long time, often worth it. And of course, we are working on new things. So... Uh, we are working on a new knife. Now, it's been a long time since we did the Ladyfinger. So we've got a new knife coming out soon. Not before Christmas, unfortunately, but uh, in the new year. And it's another great collaboration with some cool laser engraving built into it as well. We are working on watches. We are always working on watches. And the most exciting thing that I can probably tell you now is that it won't be too long before you see a new Schofield case shape. I've said it now, and so I'll have to see it through a new Schofield case shape. I've always liked the Panerai business model. Effectively, they have two case shapes, but unlike Panerai, ours won't be similar. I've been wanting to do this case shape for a long time, and there are a few opportunities now to make this happen. So that's going to be Big news, certainly for us, uh, as fundamentally all our watches are based around the one case shape. We are also working on both more expensive watches and cheap watches. More expensive being the Obscura, which I've talked about many times, of which there are snippets and design elements you can see on the internet. We're not quite there yet. There's more work to be done with it, unfortunately, but it is something that is going to happen. Also, we're working on a cheaper watch as well. Uh, we've got lots of decision-making with that project because there are questions left unanswered, like should it be Schofield or should it be a diffusion brand? Should it use 
a myota movement or should we still use ETA movements, etc. We are working on variants. We know that the Telemark X-ray is going to come out very soon. We expect to see that on the internet perhaps at Christmas time. That's expanding the markers range of watches. But if your question, Harry, is really what is on the computer screen at the moment, then that will be refinements and tweaks and constant research into everything that I've mentioned. That's what's on the computer screen. It is a way of reassuring that the idea that you are exploring, that pertinent idea, is not exhausting. It doesn't wear you out. It doesn't tire you or annoy you in any way. Now, these could simply be dial drawings. They could be hand shapes. They could be case profiles or crown designs or case back engravings. Any of these things. You have to make sure that ultimately they stand the test of time. Another reason why it takes us so long to do anything. Because I have to be sure that none of these designs are fashionable, like I mentioned right at the very beginning of this podcast. I don't want ephemeral watch design. I want that classicism. I want to understand that language and how that language changes so that all of the designs are pertinent and all of the designs endure. I want to make sure that everything that Schofield does is impressive, not just in first contact, but as the products age. This is called design perdurance, and it is something that is so important to me that it slows down my output considerably. I wish in some ways, actually, that I wasn't so fussy and particular because perhaps then we could launch a watch every year, maybe a variant every six months. But I can't change that because ultimately it'll be a sad day if I fell out of love with the work that I do here. Because ultimately it would be a sad day, I think, if I was less keen on coming into work because I no longer had the enthusiasm to do the designs. So after today's episode, we've only really got time for one extra question. And this is a question that comes from Mr. C. He asks, why, with the exception of the telemark, do all of the numerated watch dials employ a slash zero instead of a 12? This takes me back to the first seminar I ever gave at Salon QP, which was 45 minutes on the slash zero. I always felt if I could wax lyrical about a tiny detail like the zero for 45 minutes, then it was a good way of articulating the fact that I could probably talk all day about any other detail of the watch. The slash zero is fundamentally about symmetry because with a single digit, when I only use numeration at the cardinal points, so that's zero, three, six, and nine, zero, of course, is a single digit, and therefore I retain the symmetry. The slash zero, because it is about clarity to distinguish it from an O. Now, of course, at that position of the dial, they're not likely to get confused between the letter O and the number zero. However, the zero with a slash in was a further articulation of clarity, of readability of the watches. It is also 
interesting to me because it is very similar to the symbol of phi, which of course is the symbol representing the golden rectangle, the golden ratio and the golden mean. That's phi, a circle with a line through it, the Greek letter. It is also interesting because it is a transitory number. And that is, is if you ask children to write you a sequence of numbers from zero to nine, they start with zero and go one, two, three, etc. On a computer keyboard, you find the zero after the nine. So as the watch hand passes between 11 through 12, zero exists on that space that 12 occupies. But most manufacturers choose to use 12 because, of course, we say 12 unless you're in the military. Now, it was a, a nod to the military. We used an army green on the first watch. And I wanted that little tiny military nod again as an articulation of robustness. Really, it was a combination of designs that led to the use of the slash zero. It's worth bearing in mind that most slash zeros go from top right to bottom left. Now my slash zero goes the other way because it's my slash zero. The telemark, which is fully numerated, does not have a slash zero simply because the font looked terrible with a line through it. It's a pixelated monospaced font, perfectly suited to the telemark design, very Bauhaus, very AEG wool clock from the 50s or perhaps earlier. And I experimented with a thinner line intersecting the zero, but it looked really bad and confusing. So I decided to keep the zero, but no slash. Perhaps, Mr. C, if we wait for the second hand to point dead top center, then we have a perfect slash zero, or in fact, phi. Thank you for listening to the Six Pips podcast. If you want to find out more about Schofield, then check out our website, schofieldwatchcompany.com and our Instagram, at schofieldwatchcompany. If you have any questions for us, our email address is social at schofieldwatchcompany.com. Thanks for listening.